Gender. Body acceptance. Abortion. Sex. Racial justice. Feminism. Birth. Parenthood. Stigma. Bodily autonomy. And more. This is Reproductive Left by Mabel Watson Center, an independent feminist nonprofit comprehensive healthcare provider in Bangor, Maine. Join us as we explore topics that impact our sexual and reproductive health and lives. Here's your host, Aspen Rulin. Aspen uses they, them pronouns and is our client and community advocate. Hello, lovely listeners. I'm Aspen Rulin. My pronouns are they, them, and I am your host here on Reproductive Left. Today's episode will be focused on a bit of a sore topic, herpes. Not only will we be talking about what herpes really is, but why there's so much stigma around it and how we can fight against that unhealthy approach to herpes and all other STIs. So first things first, what even is herpes? Herpes simplex virus, or HSV, is a virus that, if symptomatic, can cause blisters or ulcers at the infection site, according to the World Health Organization. That is also according to me, a person living with an oral infection of HSV-1. What many people don't know is that herpes includes something commonly known as cold sores, or those annoying sores and blisters that some of us get around our mouths. Like most people with oral herpes, I contracted it in early childhood, probably from a parent or another adult family member in my life through a kiss or by sharing food. And like most people with oral herpes, it doesn't impact my life beyond being an occasional annoyance. Some of you may be saying to yourself, well, Aspen, of course your oral herpes didn't ruin your life. That's a totally different thing than genital herpes. And fortunately, you would be wrong. When it comes to herpes simplex virus, there's HSV-1 and HSV-2. HSV-1 can present as either oral herpes or genital herpes, depending on the infection site, while HSV-2 is typically only genital herpes, though on rare occasion, it can be an oral infection. Like I said before, symptomatic herpes presents as blisters or ulcers at the infection site. And that's true whether we are talking about genital or oral herpes. In the case of genital herpes, that can include on or around the actual genitals, the buttocks or anus. And I even know of someone who has sores appear on the back of their hips when they have an outbreak. Why is it so important to know that oral herpes and genital herpes are essentially the same thing with different infection sites? First, to fight the stigma. I've never faced stigma for having oral herpes, and no one should face stigma for having genital herpes. Second, because not only does this stigma harm people living with genital herpes, but it also leads to people having inaccurate sexual health information. Remember how I said that HSV-1 can be oral or genital herpes? 
someone with an oral herpes infection can transmit the virus to a sexual partner's genitals. Not only was I never taught this in sex ed, but when I asked my sex ed teacher about it, because at that point I had heard cold sores referred to as oral herpes, but hadn't been given much information around it, my sex ed teacher told me that it couldn't be transmitted that way. From talking to others, I know that it wasn't just my sex ed teacher providing misinformation. This is a huge ongoing issue with sex education in the United States. While herpes of any kind is absolutely manageable, people need to be given accurate information so they can make informed decisions. The next important thing to talk about with this is who has herpes? And the answer is a lot of people. You may have already figured that out since I brought up oral herpes and cold sores. According to a few sources like the World Health Organization and the National Institutes of Health, roughly 50 to 80% of people under the age of 50 have oral herpes, while 13% have genital herpes. Though some sources even estimate up to 25% of people have genital herpes. This is a very rough estimate because many people who contract herpes never have an outbreak. So when I talk about how I have oral herpes, that's what I have symptoms for. I could be someone who has genital herpes for all I know, but have never had an outbreak. Even if you're someone who gets regular STI testing, like me, you could have herpes without knowing it, because typical STI panels don't test for herpes. This isn't to keep people in the dark, it's because unless someone is presenting with symptoms for genital herpes and they want to rule out other concerns, a herpes test isn't going to be useful in most cases. If someone is presenting with symptoms, they can have the sore swabbed and that testing can determine if it's herpes and if so, whether it's HSV-1 or HSV-2. If someone gets a blood test though, that kind of testing can have a really hard time differentiating between the two types and won't tell you the infection site. Further, herpes testing doesn't tell you how long you've had herpes, and while someone might have newly presenting symptoms, that doesn't mean it's newly contracted. Some people with herpes go their whole lives without an outbreak. Now, there are health concerns around herpes. If you're an adult with a typical immune system, your biggest physical health concerns are likely to be the discomfort they can cause during an outbreak, possible infection if bacteria gets introduced to an open sore, similar to if you cut yourself shaving and bacteria was introduced, uh, and an increased risk of contracting other STIs if you have unprotected sex during an outbreak. With that last risk, it doesn't mean you would contract an STI if your partner didn't have one. It just means if they did have it and you get exposed, having an open sore would increase the risk. Again, really similar to if you're someone who shaves and you accidentally cut yourself shaving, that would be an increased risk, really of the same caliber. People with compromised immune systems can be more impacted by herpes. So if that's you, talk with your medical provider. Since herpes isn't really that big of a deal health-wise, why is it so stigmatized? 
The first reason is that genital herpes is a sexually transmitted infection, and our culture is very stigmatizing around STIs because our culture does not have a healthy relationship with sex. Another contributing factor to the stigma around herpes is that while it's manageable, it is a lifelong thing. I've had oral herpes for as long as I can remember, and I'll have it until I die. Prior to the 1970s, though, herpes wasn't really seen as an issue, nor was it differentiated between oral and genital. Starting out in the 70s and 80s, various media outlets from newspapers to magazines to television started harping on the supposed dangers of herpes and how it was a punishment for sexual promiscuity and sexual liberation. Many publications went so far as to refer to it as a sexual leprosy. Unfortunately, and without any scientific basis, this view of herpes became not only mainstream belief, but something that permeated sex education curriculum. Quick side note, big thank you to L.V. Anderson and their article, How Herpes Became a Sexual Boogeyman, from Slate for much of this history on herpes stigma. If you're like me and like to learn about sexual health history, I definitely recommend giving the article a read, which is linked in the description. The context of the roots of herpes stigma is so important to fight against it. So now that we've talked about what herpes really is and the unnecessary stigma around it, I think it's a good time to look at how to approach herpes better going forward. The first, most obvious step is to stop perpetuating stigma against herpes and all other STIs. This can be a hard step for people to take because it goes against how we've been taught to view sexual health. No more using herpes as an insult, no more referring to people who don't have STIs as clean and people who do as dirty. Talk about sexual health with accurate, stigma-free language. Ask a potential sexual partner what their status is, when they were last tested for STIs, and what they were tested for. Along with reinforcing stigma, asking someone if they're quote-unquote clean doesn't make for an informed conversation. Now, only you can decide what risks you are comfortable with. If someone discloses to you that they have herpes, oral or genital, you are obviously not obligated to have sex with them. You are, however, obligated to not be rude about their status. There is no such thing as risk-free sex, so how you navigate risk management has to be based on your knowledge and your comfort level. Some people may always use barrier protection during sex, while others use barrier protection during penetrative sex, but not oral. While avoiding sexual contact when someone is having an active herpes outbreak is a good idea, both for risk reduction and comfort, because, ouch, it's important to remember that it's a risk reduction, not an elimination. Like I've mentioned already, many people with herpes never have an outbreak, so they don't know that they have it. Now, let's talk about people who have herpes and know it. Are you someone like me with oral herpes? That's important to disclose to sexual partners, or potential ones even. I used to not disclose that because I was lied to about how herpes transmission works. 
Now I know better, so I let possible sex partners know that I have it and that oral herpes can be transmitted to genitals. They can make their decisions with that knowledge and I encourage them to do research or ask questions, especially since I do sex education. Not to get too into it, but if I have a cold sore, I don't do anything that involves my mouth, both for risk reduction and because it would just feel ouchy and uncomfortable. Another great way to reduce the likelihood of transmission is to use barrier protection like dental dams or condoms during oral sex. Disclosing genital herpes can be done in pretty much the same way. Obviously, a big difference is the stigma that genital herpes has that oral herpes lacks. Fighting that stigma takes time and the work of many people to reshape our culture. But a lot of folks find it helpful when disclosing to provide information to sexual partners about risk reduction through barrier use and the relationship between genital herpes and oral herpes. I was able to find a great post on disclosing herpes status to casual sex partners on the Instagram account safe.slut. That would be S-A-F-E period S-L-U-T, which is an account focused on HSV positivity. What I especially love is that this is advice coming from someone who actually knows what she's talking about because she's living it. Safe Slut says, one, don't have sexual contact before disclosing. Two, a good way to ease into the conversation is to ask the person if they've been tested recently. Three, disclose and discuss how it's really not a big deal, that it's the same as cold sores in a different location. Share facts, keep it short, and ask if they have questions. Number four, confidence is key. Five, don't skip over what the risks are. Casual is good, but it's important to be realistic and honest. Number six, if there's alcohol involved and you don't think the other person can grasp the info or make an informed decision, wait until everyone's sobered up so things are consensual. Seven, if someone hasn't been tested recently, it's okay to not have sex with them. And eight, a lot of people are just uneducated on the topic and happy to learn. And a lot of people are surprised to find out that herpes isn't on the standard STI panel. Honestly, in my opinion, if someone is shamey about you having herpes, kick them to the curb. You deserve to be respected, whether that's by sexual partners or by friends. One way to help fight stigma, whether or not you have herpes, is to get familiar with HSV-positive content. This can be through social media, like the Instagram account SafeSlut that I mentioned, or the article from Slate that I talked about earlier in the podcast. You can have conversations with people in your life about the reality of herpes and challenge stigmatizing jokes when you hear them made. When we break free from stigma, we can lead happier, healthier lives that center knowledge and pleasure. I'm going to rewind us for a second and go back to the topic of what are the actual health concerns when it comes to herpes? Before, I mentioned the concerns for adults with typical immune systems, but not everyone is an adult with a typical immune system. 
Now, for those that are, your likelihood of contracting oral herpes in adulthood is pretty slim. But if you have a compromised immune system or you're a child, you could find yourself in the cold sore club with me. Like we talked about before though, just because you're having a first outbreak of herpes, oral or genital, does not necessarily mean it's a newly acquired infection. Oral herpes is most likely to be acquired in childhood because babies and children have weaker immune systems and often get kissed by and share food with adult family members. Herpes can be spread when someone doesn't have an outbreak or a cold sore, though the risk is pretty significantly lower. This risk is why you may have parents of new babies with strict rules that you are not allowed to kiss their baby, even if you're a grandparent or other close relative. It's an unfortunately common occurrence for people to ignore the boundaries that parents set for their babies and young children, especially first time parents, around things like hugs and physical contact. That is its own whole issue of entitlement, but it is so, so important to listen to parents and stop kissing their babies. As an adult, oral herpes doesn't really impact me beyond the occasional annoyance, but the first outbreak for a young child is often much more severe. And in the case of babies or those with immune health issues, it can actually be dangerous. Stop kissing other people's babies and just smell their head for that sweet newborn baby smell like the rest of us. As long as the parents are okay with that, of course. Another area where herpes and baby health intersect comes up with childbirth. If you are someone who has given birth before, you might remember getting tested for herpes. This is because if a pregnant person has genital herpes and has an outbreak while giving birth, it can be transmitted to the newborn if they give vaginal birth. While not a common occurrence, it can be super dangerous if this happens. Now, the good news is that if you're a pregnant person and you have genital herpes, you do not automatically have to give birth via cesarean section. You can work with your medical team and take medication that suppresses herpes outbreaks to make vaginal birth safer. I am, of course, not a medical professional by any stretch of the imagination, so if this is a concern you have, please talk to someone more qualified than me. Also, to be clear, I am not knocking C-sections here, just saying that a herpes diagnosis doesn't have to be the deciding factor in how you give birth. I want to thank everyone for joining me in this exploration of herpes today. Did this change your view of herpes? If you're someone living with herpes, I hope this helped to remind you that there is nothing wrong with you for being HSV positive. If you have questions about your own status, accessing treatment for herpes, or anything else about your sexual health, reach out to Mabel Wadsworth Center and schedule a visit with one of our providers. Remember that regardless of your status, you deserve pleasure on your terms. See you next time.